With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, folks, welcome to the program. It is Thursday. You're with TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you guys for joining us here. Appreciate our listeners, our viewers as well. If you're watching us on any of the live streams, uh, you also want to head over to the TNT chat community. That's a little red bubble in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. If you're at the URL, tntradio.live, uh, just click in there, log into the chat room. We've got a vibrant and ever-growing community in there, so that's where you want to be during this show. Now, we have a brilliant program lined up for you today. I am absolutely honored to be bringing some of our guests onto the stage, including David Miller, an academic uh, from the United Kingdom. We're going to be talking about, well, his tribunal case. Uh, he was removed from his position uh, at the University of Bristol over uh, allegations of anti-Semitism, among other things. Uh, we'll talk to him about his case, but also the new UK legislation that is going to test this very point uh, and it's going to test the limits of free speech in the so-called democratic world. That's coming up. We'll get his take on this very important discussion, by the way. I'm looking forward to that. And also in the second hour, we're gonna be uh, connecting with academic Zachary Foster to learn more about the legal implications of Israel's genocide in Gaza. I don't think people quite understand how far reaching this is going to be. We put out a video on our social media uh, in the last couple of days uh, to basically explain and ask those questions. We put those questions out to the public. Pe people beware of what's coming because it's going to be years and decades. Uh, this is going to drag on for a very long time indeed. So uh, we'll talk about that uh, as well with Zachary Foster, who's a brilliant analyst, by the way. Uh, I follow him on X Twitter. I think all of you should uh, follow all of our guests. If you go to our show post at 21 Wire and just check on to the at their address on social media at Twitter and just follow them on X x twitter as they as some people are calling it it's hard to say x because not everybody knows that it was a rebrand because elon didn't do a very good job uh, on the handover so people are saying x twitter some people still call it twitter that's another story altogether we'll also join uh, join up with christian our research assistant for the show to talk about a couple of big stories obviously one of them is his uh Farmers uh, featured article about the farmers' protest and food security. That's up at 21st Century Wire. Brilliant piece by Christian. Really fantastic read, by the way. If you haven't seen it yet, it's at our website. We'll try to drop that link uh, into our TNT chat room uh, if we're able to during his segment. Uh, and also, we'll talk to him about UK local governments are going bankrupt. They've been, they have huge slush funds over the years. Where did all the money go? How come all the local councils are going bankrupt? They keep raising council tax, poll taxes, some people call it, uh, and still there seems to be no money left. What's going on? Uh, how are they running their operations? Is there some untoward financial activity going on there? We'll talk to Christian about that. That's pretty incredible and uh, not a good sign going forward. Absolutely. Nobody's happy about this. It's not going to pretend well, really, for the future. Now, we'll, we'll hit all those uh, as well. We'll also uh, hopefully try to catch up with uh, uh, some of our other uh, news sources and feeds and bring you uh, some of the major stories uh, internationally. 
And one of them is, uh, well, a couple of important points to make here. Okay. One of them is uh, we reported on this program that a Russian uh, airplane was shot down uh, over Russia uh, by the Ukrainians. They admitted it. It was carrying POWs. Uh, this was a scheduled flight. Everybody knew it. Both sides knew it, yet they shot it anyway. We suspected that might be the case that Ukraine wanted to liquidate its own prisoners uh, and also the prisoners uh, which they're exchanging as well. Um, uh, that's another report as well that we'll add to that on the back end. But on the Ukrainian POWs, um, who who was on the plane? Were they Azov Battalion uh, members? Uh, would would this be the type of situation where there are people they didn't want talking afterwards? Um, was this a mistake? Uh, was this a military target that they think they were just hitting a Russian plane? I don't believe in coincidences, okay? But what we do know now, which is interesting, Russia's done a forensic investigation into this, and they can identify that as a U.S. missile that brought this plane down. So another mark in the column towards a, a World War III-type situation, uh, the United States is supplying missiles to shoot down Russian aircraft. So how's Moscow going to take this? Uh, is this going to be considered an escalation by Moscow? Uh, certainly it's worthy because the United States is making the same argument, claiming that Iran has attacked their soldiers in what they claim is Jordan. In reality, it's probably in Syria, uh, but they've just changed the location of the deaths for legal reasons because the United States are illegally occupying uh, Syrian territory. They're not supposed to be there. So actually the soldiers there have no legal standing. Uh, it also has implications uh, back domestically as well. But the, the U.S. is claiming, well, because there are Iranian weapons that hit these U.S. bases, therefore the U.S. reserves the right to uh, retaliate against Iran. So spurious at best. They have no actual proof or evidence of this, uh, but yet these claims are being made. But here we have the same situation that's provable uh, and more direct, in fact, uh, in Ukraine. And so is, the, is, is Russia going to uh, sort of loudly announce with bluster that they're going to retaliate against the United States in the same way that the U.S. does with Iran? Well, it doesn't look like it. They haven't done that. That does show you a little bit of how Russia conducts itself uh, on the international stage, much different than the United States, probably with a little more uh, decorum and much more circumspect uh, about the language that they use uh, coming out of Moscow as compared to Washington, uh, which basically is constantly threatening everybody and also hitting everybody uh, as well. So it's an interesting dynamic there, an interesting dynamic. We thought we'd uh, highlight the contrast there because it is very telling going forward. These are the conversations worth having when it comes to international uh, events as well. And what's interesting is the West is refusing to cooperate with uh, Russia on Ukrainian POW uh, plane downing, which is interesting. So again, United States not wanting to uh, be involved in any international incidents, which they themselves uh, are probably involved in. Uh, no surprise there, but it kind of it's it's a bit of a implicit admission of their own guilt. Uh, that they wouldn't want to be sort of more open and transparent about a major international incident that could trigger an escalation in a very tense situation. We're just saying that's not not generally productive, not a good thing. I don't think that's in the interests of the American public, the Ukrainian, or the Russian public, uh, to be quite frank. But yet that's where we are. Now, 
moving on as well uh there's a few other breaking stories uh where we have uh, issues regarding uh central asia and china uh china's now being dragged into um geopolitics uh in the last couple of years and they, they sat back they're in a very strong position uh, as a country they don't need to go out they're not an expeditionary force uh they don't throw their weight around militarily around the world they don't have bases dotted all around the world they may have one external base maybe two uh but uh even then uh, china is not seen as a sort of aggress aggressor internationally and yet this is how they are painted by the united states by u.s congressmen senators constantly saying every single speech uh, the preamble is that uh, uh, China is our biggest competitor and they mean to do us harm. Uh, China is getting ready to overtake us and they're going to uh, push the United States out and they're going to do it economically or militarily. They're, they're sensing Biden's weakness. You hear all this stuff, especially on Fox News, on kind of a daily basis. And this is really uh, this is verbiage uh, that's probably coming from uh, think tanks in the Beltway that are funded by the defense industry and lobbyists from the defense industry, and they uh, inject that sort of uh, uh, speech into congressmen and senators' brains, and they then regurgitate that uh, whenever they're making a statement regarding uh, China. But uh, what's interesting as well is how the aggression towards Russia by the West and the, the language, the threats against China, this has driven China closer to Russia. And in terms of controlling the Eurasian landmass, which has always been the raison d'etre of the United States, of the British Empire, um, this is really kind of undermining that long-term geostrategic goal that they've always had uh, from Halford Mackinder, uh, be even before that, the great game, uh, but moving into the 20th century. And that baton was handed over by the British as their empire sank, uh, handed it over to the likes of Zbigniew Brzezinski to articulate the very same doctrine with the United States running point and Britain running shotgun. So the Chinese uh, defense chief, defense minister, um, head of their armed forces, has promised support uh, for Russia on the Ukraine issue. Now, this is a major story, and this is indicative, I think, of uh, where the other powers are in the BRICS nations, for instance, where they are in terms of the future. They're seeing the future for them, the only viable future is to cooperate with each other uh, and to be skeptical of uh, cooperating or trusting anything coming out in terms of diplomacy uh, from Washington. And with good reason, because the, uh, the track record hasn't been very good uh, in the last couple of years. But for China to say they're weighing in on the side of Russia on the Ukraine issue, I think is very significant. These are the sort of sort of latent moves that you can see that are meaningful. And we're going to highlight that. We'll, we'll extrapolate more on that perhaps uh, in the second hour when we hit the world news after the next news headline break in the second hour maybe we'll pick up the threads on some of these stories but uh let it be known ladies and gentlemen the world is changing the world is changing what's happening in gaza the failure of nato and ukraine all of these things are the, the the global geopolitical landscape is changing the tectonic plates are changing and people got to get with it over in the west because you are absolutely playing catch up if you're not paying attention to all this closely anyway Let's take a break with TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back with our guest, David Miller. 
after these messages. Stay right there. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says, the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they, could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois. And this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right minds goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Many pollution sources can affect the air you breathe. From power plants and vehicles to dust and wildfires. Knowing more about local air quality can help you protect your health. If you're thinking about buying an air sensor, EPA has a series of videos to help you get the most out of it. Learn how EPA collects and uses regulatory data, how EPA communicates health messaging, and how to interpret the readings from your sensor. Visit epa.gov slash air dash sensor dash toolbox. Internet. Internet. A stream online. TNTradio.live. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT, today's news talk. We're broadcasting live for the next two hours. We're still in hour number one of this program today and appreciate you guys, especially everybody in the TNT chat community. We can see the numbers growing there again today. Uh, we passed the high watermark of 140 members in there yesterday. Let's get those numbers up to 150 uh, today if we can. We'll interact with you when we're able to during the program, but in the meantime, I want to welcome onto the program a very very special guest, David Miller from the United Kingdom. He is an academic. Uh, he is also on the cutting edge of a major debate, uh, testing the limits of speech in the democratic world. Uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating there. I think it's a very important case, which David is facing his own case, uh, plus the legislation coming into the pipeline right now in the UK, but also in the United States, we see similar moves and resolutions in the US Congress to basically regulate speech, especially surrounding the issue of Israel. Uh, so let me welcome onto the program David Miller right now. David, thank you for joining us uh, this week. It's a pleasure. David, uh, you know, as, before we get get into some of the bigger uh, issues regarding speech legislation, um, you're embroiled in uh, a long-running battle 
uh, personally um, with you yourself professionally, um, a major case uh, regarding uh, academia, I think, uh, and also could set a precedent right now. Um, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar or viewers who aren't familiar of your case, give us a little bit of a summary of what happened to you and then where this uh, is at right now, the process that you're uh, engaged in. Go ahead, David. So I was a professor of political sociology at the University of Bristol in the UK. I gave a lecture um, some six months after I'd started there on Islamophobia, in which I discussed the role of Zionism in pushing Islamophobia. Some students complained. It was a long process of um, going backwards and forwards. I was cleared three times of anti-Semitism, uh, and then I was summarily sacked for upsetting the students, and I appealed, I, the appeal failed. And then took the university to court in October last year, some nearly three years after I had been sacked. Uh, and uh, the, the court proceedings lasted until December. We're now waiting for the judgment. But the key question in the judgment is not um, the first point of my legal case, which was that I was wrongly dismissed, uh, which I think is pretty, pretty clear. But the, this, the key point is the second point which we made in, in my case, which was that the reason that I was sacked was because of my anti-Zionist views, that I, ha I have anti-Zionist views, I've been an anti-Zionist for some uh, considerable time, uh, and that I had expressed anti-Zionist views in criticising Zionist student groups uh, and indeed the Zionist movement more broadly uh, for its role in Islamophobia. And that was the reason I, I maintained that I was sacked. And in the case, the university witnesses uh, started off by claiming that, that that wasn't the case, it was because I'd upset students, but eventually it became clear that really what they they were concerned about with the things I'd said was the, was the fact of the anti-Zionism. So uh, I'm hoping that the, the judgment will, uh, uh, which will come out any, any day now, will confirm that uh, it was the anti-Zionist views which led to me being sacked, and that the anti-Zionist views are, uh, to use the technical language in the British Equality Act of 2010, are worthy of respect in a democratic society. Now, the technical meaning of that in, 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 the, in the legal test where you used to establish whether uh, particular views are worthy of respect is, are these views akin to Nazism or not? Now, uh, in the particular case, the university changed its actual uh, legal case at the last minute as we started the tribunal, and it maintained that my views were akin to Nazism, which was a, a <laughs> terrible, terrible legal mistake that they made changing the strategy like that of course they couldn't establish any such thing and they tied themselves up in uh, terrible terrible knots in that process so it, we're in in the territory of potentially establishing the principle that anti-zionist views of the sort that i espoused are protected in law and it would be illegal to discriminate against people with anti-zionist views so the, the hope is that this establishes the principle that will protect many others uh, 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 from their employers' arbit arbitrary sackings and uh, disciplinary uh, offences uh, uh, going forward. And did you face this this problem, which is now um, a serious problem, uh, whereby the institution or the establishment is conflated uh, anti-Zionist views with quote anti-Semitism, and then they're following the uh, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition, the IHRA's definition of anti-Semitism, which continues to expand um, uh, by the year. But is is that a, a challenge that you ran up against in making these arguments? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, when um, the complaints were first made, the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition had not been adopted by the university and the, uh, the Zionist students who eventually uh, made the formal complaints uh, complained uh, and appealed the, the, uh, the rejection of their complaints on, uh, on the basis that, that the university hadn't used the IHRA. The university then unilaterally offered to the student to pause the complaint while they considered whether to introduce the IHRA and some six months later they duly did introduce the IHRA and then they re-started uh, the complaint so that I could be judged under rules that they had just introduced. Uh, and of course that didn't work for them because uh, of course the, the QC, the external QC uh, who investigated the complaint determined that nothing I had said uh, was in any way anti-Semitic and nor indeed did it breach the IHRA. Although of course, as you say, the, the reason for them introducing the IHRA is that they, they try and uh, uh, um, they try and sort of criminalize or uh, smear anti-Zionist views as if they are anti-Semitic. As everyone knows, the examples appended to the IHRA mainly discuss Israel as opposed to discussing racism against the Jews. Uh, and that, of course, is the, the whole purpose of the definition is to, is to use a bludgeon to get uh, to pursue Israeli foreign policy objectives uh, uh, throughout the world. Yeah, because it's pretty clear uh, your your career, David, and your organization, Spinwatch, and even your your Twitter ID is at Tracking Power, which is exactly what you've been doing. Your whole career is identifying how power, the dynamics of power works between government, society, and in the international uh, relations field as well. So it's pretty clear where you know, you're coming from on that. Uh, and I think it's really important. And just before we move on, um, what what are the prospects in your case? Are you positive um, in terms of long term outcome on this? Uh, well, I'm I'm optimistic that, that we will have a good judgment on this uh, uh, very soon. If we don't have a good judgment, we'll appeal because they, it's perfectly plain the university didn't wasn't able to make its case, and actually the witnesses from the university all. Uh, collapsed under the weight of the own the contradictions of their evidence. So we'll certainly appeal, but I'm hoping for a, a good result. The whole point of this, of course, is to push back against the overwhelming deluge of uh, of pressure that there is from the British state uh, uh, under, of course, uh, its own pressure from the Zionists to criminalise pro-Palestinian uh, activism. So we've had complaints uh, and uh, legal actions and police actions against uh, people uh, having particular leaflets or flying Palestinian flags or using the phrase from the river to the sea, even uh, having cartoons of, of, uh, of people in paragliders which are held to somehow glorify or justify terrorism. These people have been taken into custody and uh, have been arrested or sometimes charged with the offences that was, people were charged with uh, a racially aggravated offence for holding an effigy of a dead baby on a, on a pro-Palestinian demonstration, as if that was somehow racist against the Jews. Uh, on the contrary, it's an anti-racist statement. But that's that's the pressure that we get. And of course, the, the government itself is trying to introduce a new anti-BDS, that's Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions legislation to make it illegal to boycott uh, uh, Israel, uh, to make it illegal to boycott the pers pursuers and purveyors of genocide. I mean, truly, truly extraordinary times that we live in, but that's where the law is going. And my, I'm hoping my case will be the start of the fight back against that because the, you know, this will not go away without us standing together and, and, and 
well, fighting back against these ridiculous uh, uh, rules and rules and regulations, uh, and uh, defeating them once, once and for all. I, I, I put this under the banner. At least this is in the United States, where we're having going through similar uh, challenges, David, as you know. Um, but I'm I'm put it under broadly under the banner of speech control, uh, because with with all of the the town square, if you will, the global digital town square coalescing online on these major social media platforms, that's where the majority of the discourse is happening. Um, you see moves by governments to seize control of these platforms, at least to control the speech on them by uh, AI or algorithmic means or physically in the case of Twitter, um, the massive trust and safety departments at Facebook as well, um, basically looking and policing speech. Um, in the UK, David, and your case is a bit of a canary in the coal mine early, uh, you're, an er you're an early symptom of this, I think, with your case, but what is coming down the pipeline now in the UK, especially regarding um, this issue as it relates to um, the, the anti-Semitism speech or the accusations of anti-Semitism, um, and also in relation to BDS, I think those are um, absolutely linked, because isn't BDS really just taking a political stance. So in effect, are we talking about censoring political speech across the board? What's happening in the UK right now? Well, yes, it is about censoring political speech. Of course it is. I mean, but let, let's remember that we, we live in a society where uh, the, the hegemon, the Western hegemon, the US, uh, is in decline. Uh, and uh, although it tries, uh, along with its allies in the UK, to impose order, this order is continually failing to be imposed. So it's very difficult for them to impose order on the social media companies, even though the social media companies are themselves very, very keen to uh, to adhere to the uh, the pressure and to respond to the pressure that they're given. Facebook, of course, a company with, with very many Zionists in senior management positions, as well as, of course, taking advice from Zionist bodies and one who to censor. Uh, X, Twitter or X is a slightly different case, um, uh, which we could talk about, but of course, Elon Musk is, a, is fairly idiosyncratic, and of course, it's meant that in some respects, uh, Twitter or X has become much more uh, responsive to the public mood uh, since he's taken over, but of course, there are also other ways in which he's now trying to, to interfere with it. Symptomatic of that, of course, is his statement that from the river to the sea is a genocidal and racist statement and will not be allowed henceforth on X. But since then, of course, its use has uh, gone through the roof uh, <laughs> and uh, increased by several magnitudes because, of course, he can't stop uh, people using a slogan like that because it's so popular. And that's, of course, the, the, the same with Facebook, even though it is constantly censoring uh, pro-Palestinian speech, it cannot remove the, the absolute dominance of pro-Palestinian views uh, on Facebook and on Twitter, because that's world opinion, and so that that's the difficulty they're facing is that is their control. But look, the, 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 it is a question of political speech. But let's remember also that the 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 approach which is being pursued by the state of Israel uh, in relation to academic freedom and in relation to freedom of speech, and it, its position on freedom of speech and on academic freedom is is absolutely clear. We we see that, of course, first of all by the fact that they have destroyed every single university. Uh, in Gaza, uh, deliberately uh, and calculatingly destroyed them, uh, starting in, in uh, late October and through to December, uh, after they destroyed the Islamic University of Gaza uh, by late December, they purposefully 
uh, executed the the rector, the, the the president of the university, along with all of his family. So the the view of the Zionists on academic freedom is that there should be no academic freedom at all for those who are pro-Palestinian. Now it may seem hyperbolic to say this, but they would do the same with us in the UK and the US if they could get away with it. Of course, they can't get away with that. So what they do instead is that they send their agents and assets onto campus. They spy on students, they uh, defame students, they try and have them sacked. They have are able to sometimes get, even get the the uh, the very most senior uh, officials in universities, as has been the case in Harvard and Penn, uh, uh, removed for the sin of, of saying something slightly less exacting than they would themselves want to have said have said about anti-Semitism. So they, ha they have a huge apparatus of disinformation, bullying and intimidation on campus. Um, uh, I could go through some of the names of the organizations if you wish, both in Absolutely, the Absolutely, yeah, yeah, please do. Other, other countries as well. So for example, there's, a, there's, a, there's an organization called the Israel on Campus Coalition, which is there to, to spy uh, on students. And it, uh, it uses and passes on intelligence uh, through, for example, the Anti-Defamation League, uh, an organization supposed to be about anti-Semitism, but which of course is always uh, being very, very close to the Mossad and indeed to to Israeli intelligence before the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, it, it has been the case. It's, it was famously involved in the, a spy case in the 1990s where it was passing information to the, the apartheid regime of South Africa. And these agencies are there to spy on and collaborate with uh, Israeli intelligence organizations. They also have a, an apparatus for uh, producing trolls and troll farms and student groups on the campuses in the US. Of course, there's Hillel, which is the Zionist student organization in the UK. The same organization is called the Union of Jewish Students, and they're there to make sure that uh, uh, that no one can effectively do pro-Palestinian uh, activism. But let's also remember that there are other organizations on campus of people are generally not aware of, which are also part of the Zionist movement. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of an organization called Chabad, which is a Hasidic sect, uh, which has 850, uh, has, has presence on 850 campuses worldwide, including in Belarus and Russia and China and all the places you wouldn't expect them to have offices, but th over a thousand in, in the US. And it's an organization which believes that uh, non-Jews have animal souls, that it's, per it's permissible to kill Palestinian babies because they might in the future grow up to threaten uh, the settlers in Palestine, an organization which should have no place in any de democratic society, but people don't even notice it's there to radicalize students on campuses across the US and indeed across the rest of the world. So there's a huge apparatus which the, the Israelis, the, the Zionist entity and the, the Zionist movement uh, in the US and other places, of course, the US has the biggest Zionist movement in the world. Uh, they, they put this apparatus into play to make sure that it's very, very difficult to support the Palestinians to uh, to call out genocide to uh, to to give meaningful solidarity to the Palestinians uh, and that that's the that's the apparatus of the Zionist movement in relation to to academic freedom and freedom of speech and then also in terms of uh, 
uh, adopting this the the IHRA definition of of anti-Semitism. I know the Labour Party has more or less done this, if I'm not mistaken. And this is one of the things uh, that happened after they ousted uh, their former leader Jeremy Corbyn. But there's a lot of pressure for that to sort of be uh, adopted at a sort of higher level or integrated with legislation or something like this. I mean, how far along are they in that process? Because that seems like a, a, a major Rubicon to to cross. If if that were the case, what 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 do you think about that issue? Well, I, I mean, the the IHRA is is the weapon of choice uh, of the Zionist movement. So, in addition to you know bullying and intimidating, this the, the weapon for doing that, of course, it has been the IHRA. This was a a, um, a, a, a working definition, as it's called, which was adopted by the IHRA in two thousand sixteen. People think that's where it, where it came from. It comes from this obscure organisation, which is an international body. But actually, no. Of course, it comes directly from uh, uh, the the Zionist regime itself. They developed this uh, definition uh, in uh, the end of the nineteen nineties, uh, in, in particular through the creation of the Global Forum for Countering Antisemitism, created in two thousand. They then got this definition adopted by the European Union Monitoring Centre on Xenophobia, which is a formal part of the European Union, Union the European apparatus. Uh, and it was then on the website of that organisation for several years, and then they removed it from the website uh, and it became effectively, uh, uh, didn't have any any uh, uh, fixed abode after that. And that led to a, a crisis talks within the Global Forum for Countering Antisemitism in the period of 2013, 14 and 15, where they said, what we've got to do is we've got to find somewhere else to lodge this definition. Uh, and uh, of course, the place they found was the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, an organization which is effectively run by the Israeli government. Uh, and they then adopted that in 2016. That allowed them then to have the weapon to, uh, uh, to as you referred to, to attack the leader of the Labour Party, the most pro-Palestinian uh, leader of the Labour Party or any party in this country had ever had. Uh, and so the weapon was used to attack Corbyn, uh, and of course, in order for that to to be effective, they couldn't just have this definition which lay there as a, on a on a computer or on a website. They had to have people to enact and to use the weapon. They had to have foot, feet, and boots on the ground to do that. And so, of course, in the UK, uh, from starting from around 2009, but especially from 2014, the Zionists created a huge number of new uh, pro-Israel organisations, 40 or 50 new organisations. Uh, in the UK, some have now uh, gone out of uh, of use and have been closed down because their their function has been uh, has been concluded. But they 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 created all these organisations which could then take complaints against uh, Labour councillors or uh, um, Labour Party members or members of solidarity groups, and they could then get use these complaints to try and have them removed from being candidates or members of the party, etc. And of course, that's the way in which it operates. They have this weapon definition and they have boots on the ground uh, coordinated from Tel Aviv uh, and in many cases with money directly from Tel Aviv to to uh, undertake this activity and some people think you know that uh, in, fact, in fact people say the Zionists some of the, sometimes the, the liberal and leftist Zionists say oh well you you think that the Zionist organiz uh, movement is all coordinated and of course it's not all coordinated there are many different strands of Zionist ideas uh, there are the left-wing ones and the right-wing ones uh, and of course, this is true. There are left and right wing Zionists, but of course, they're all united on uh, on the fact of being and the clues in the name Zionist, and that means, of course, uh, believing in the genocidal idea that there's a right to a Jewish state in historic Palestine at the expense of the Palestinians. 
all Zionists believe in that, whether they're nice liberal and left Zionists or not. And of course, they all work together to do that. And of course, what they also, also and we've found evidence of this in our research, they also coordinate together. So right-wing revisionist Zionists will coordinate with people who, who regard themselves as being socialist Zionists in order to attack the enemies of Zionism, which of course is the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Yeah, and there's other groups uh, that also, you know, kind of act as lobbyists really for this type of activity, like Hope Not Hate, these sort of NGOs. There's an interesting one called UN Watch, I think. I think that's what yeah. it's called. And and oh, that's just unbelievable, the, the stuff they're, they're many, doing. Many, many organizations. I mean, on the example of Hope Not Hate, I mean, I think you see in, in both the US and UK, I, I, I imagine it may be the same in France and Germany. I haven't looked. But in, in, in the UK, what happened was that very early on, the British anti-racist movement became infected with Zionist ideas. And the, the way it did that was because after the Second World War, uh, an anti-fascist group was created, mainly with the returning Jewish ex-servicemen, many of whom were in the Communist Party. And they set up this organization, uh, an anti-fascist organization, to block fascists on the streets. And they, they did uh, fight the fascists. And it, so people in, in history think, think of this as a left-wing organization. There were many communists involved. Uh, but actually, of course, it, at the very, very beginning of that organization, uh, by 1948, the beginning of 1948, the, this organization of left-wing anti-fascists sent tens of its members to fight uh, the Palestinians in the Nakba uh, and was was engaged in that fight. And of course, also, uh, uni, uni, you know, the whole of the organization signed up to, affiliated to the Ergen, the revisionist uh, Zionist terrorist organization, which had bombed the King David Hotel, killing, killing I think, 91 uh, people, that, uh, including many British uh, military and other personnel. So at the very beginning of the anti-racist movement in this country, there was a, there was a strong revisionist Zionist uh, current, and that current has remained all the way through from the 1940s to the present day, including the setting up of uh, uh, an organization called Searchlight, the anti-fascist uh, um, newspaper and indeed the Community Security Trust, which is the UK's equivalent of the ADL. Both of these organizations were set up with people who came from the organization which had originally affiliated to the Ergen. And Hope Not Hate, which you mentioned, of course, comes from Searchlight, uh, and Searchlight uh, famously uh, was revealed in the 1970s as coordinating not just with British intelligence, uh, but also with Israeli and indeed South African intelligence to uh, spy on the left and to spy on the pro-Palestine movement, all under the cover of being an anti-fascist organization. And uh, of course, the CST as well, an organization which runs point for the Israeli government, which collaborates regularly with the Mossad and ha has been involved with the Mossad for decades, even in its previous uh, uh, um, in incarnation. So we, what we see is that, that there's, there's a way in which the anti-racist movement in this country has been uh, infected and uh, and and compromised by the, its alliances with and the involvement of Zionists, whose whose blind spot, you know, big surprise, is racism against the Palestinians, against Arabs, and of course against Muslims too. Interesting how that uh, that that all shapes up. Also, the Center for Countering Digital Hate—that's another wow. organization we could talk about. Maybe we'll save yeah. that for after the break. Here, I'm with David Miller, UK academic. We're talking about testing the limits of speech uh, in the democratic West, uh, especially as it relates to the situation right now um, in Gaza. Let's take a break right now with TNT today's news talk, and when we come back, we're going to talk to David about how this actually, in practical terms, has shaped. 
UK politics and foreign policy. All this and more on the other side. You're listening and watching TNT. Today's News Talk. We'll be right back after these messages. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The trial of Michael Mann and Mark Stein continues. Actually, it's Michael Mann suing Mark Stein and some other people over comments that he was a fraud. And it's very, very interesting when I look at the facts of this. First of all, Dr. Mann would not allow anyone to see his actual work, which is really kind of strange. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, you see me make a forecast, but always display the reasoning and rationale behind it. Always show people what you are up to. And hey, if it doesn't, it doesn't. If it doesn't, it doesn't. That's the breaks. So you've got to be suspicious of that. Why won't you show your data? Now, as far as Dr. Mann being a Nobel Prize winner, this is from Geer Lundstedt, director of the Nobel Institute. Michael Mann has never been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He did not receive any personal certificate. He has taken the diploma awarded in 2007 to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and to Al Gore, and has created his own authentic-looking diploma. The text underneath the diploma is entirely his own, and the diploma that the IPCC got has really nothing to do with what Michael Mann got. So what he did was, he got this piece of paper and literally created his own award. Now, I happen to be a volunteer strength and nutrition advisor for the Nittany Lion Wrestling Club here at Penn State. We have a couple of gold medalists. And a couple of those gold medalists I talked to about nutrition and training. Does that make me a gold medalist? If I were to say, hey, I'm a gold medalist in the Olympics, am I a fraud? <laughs> you make the decision. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. The next time you think you can illegally handle your mobile phone while driving and get away with it, think again. Phone detection cameras are in operation on New South Wales roads. Hello? So if you're driving and illegally handle your mobile phone, you can stop it or cop it. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, folks, to TNT Today's News Talk. We're still now number one of this live broadcast. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll resume our conversation right now with our guest, David Miller. He is an academic from the United Kingdom. He also happens to be the co-host of an excellent program called pa Palestine Declassified on Press TV, co-host with Chris Williamson, former MP in the UK from Derby, who uh, coincidentally or not, uh, was also ousted from his own party in the very same way that Jeremy Corbyn was. Uh, David, um, this thing with uh, cleansing the Labour Party, sanitizing the Labour Party of wrong think, we thought it had finished. We thought they had done the job, but apparently not uh, the latest uh, victim of this. Uh, Kate Awesomeware, who's not a uh, inconsequential member of the party. She is a former uh, shadow minister holding a number of top positions in the government. Uh, she has just been ousted. And I have to go over to the uh, reporting on this. And the first thing I see in the headlines is, the Board of uh, British Deputies, or the Board of Deputies of British Jews, this organization, um, they are—they seem to be 
the end all be all when it comes to making determinations of who can be sitting in political positions or not. This is like an incredible situation. What did you make of this latest incident? Well, it's uh, uh, an ongoing process of trying to cleanse um, the Labour Party of anyone who um, is willing to say anything publicly about the Palestinians. And of course, she made some rather innocuous comment about uh, on Holocaust Memorial Day about the genocide in Gaza. And that, of course, is not acceptable. Uh, what the uh, the line is, is that you have to not mention Gaza. You have to absolutely not say Gaza is a Holocaust and absolutely uh, not say Gaza is a genocide. To do so is somehow uh, anti-Semitic, uh, which, of course, is a nonsense. And it's just, of course, the Zionist talking point on the issue. Now, the, you, you mentioned the, the Board of Deputies. Now, the Board of Deputies of British Jews poses as a an organisation which is there to represent um, Jews. Uh, um, uh, and, of course, it only represents uh, a proportion of, of Jews. It's, it's elected through uh, um, the mainstream synagogues. Uh, most of the ultra-Orthodox synagogues don't partake of, of the board. But it used to be, um, back in the day, uh, an anti-Zionist organisation uh, until the 1940s when it was taken over by the Zionists in the, in the mid-40s before the creation of the State of Israel, the occupation of Palestine. Uh, but now, of course, it's uh, and since then it's been uh, very pro-Israel, it's become more rapidly pro-Israel in recent years. Uh, it uh, you know, unblushingly says in its annual report that it cooperates closely with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the IDF spokesperson's office, etc., etc. So it's a, it's a Zionist lobby group. It has 202 members, I think, uh, up and down the country, which indicates this sort of the, the, the strength and the breadth of the Zionist movement in this country. But I, I, I wouldn't want your um, listeners of yours to think that uh, it's the Board of Deputies which, it, which influences uh, this uh, issue, uh, as, as if it's one organisation that's doing that. Of course, the, the Zionist movement is a much bigger set of organisations. I've already alluded to the fact that it has 200 odd members. Uh, but also, there are other organisations which have um, a range of members. The Zionist Federation has around 35 members. The Jewish uh, Leadership Council has around 35 members too. Uh, and then, of course, there are many other associated uh, Israel lobby groups. But the key people who are uh, uh, infiltrating and um, influencing the Labour Party are not uh, external lobby groups. Funnily enough, it's it, it's these, these are groups which come to lobby an, an organisation which is already taken over by Zionists, and in particular by in the personage of of, of a, a guy called Trevor Chin. He was one of the ones who was revealed the two or two key Zionists who were revealed to have funded the leadership campaign of Keir Starmer. Uh, and they revealed it late uh, so that the votes had already been cast before uh, people would find out. And when shortly after he was elected, he, he ran a meeting uh, to uh, to discuss with the Israel lobby uh, whether he had sufficiently cauterized the party and removed enough uh, anti-Semites, i.e. people who were willing to support Palestine from the party. And, the, and all of the key lobby groups were there. But also in the meeting was, was Trevor Chin. Now, he wasn't there as a representative of a lobby group, although he is, uh, by any uh, um, by any stretch of the imagination, the one of the key leaders of the uh, UK Zionist movement. He's been on the, uh, the the top of the the United Jewish Israel appeal, which is the biggest fundraising 
charity for Israel in the country for decades, literally decades. So he is effectively the leader of the Labour Party, the leader of the sorry, the, leader of the Labour Party. I mean, that's that's what I'm going to get into. He's the leader of the Zionist movement, but he was at that meeting not as a representative of an Israel lobby group, but as a representative of the Labour Party. He was there as a Labour Party official to be lobbied by the groups which he himself helps to run. I mean, truly extraordinary position. So, of course, this is going to go on and on through the party. Anyone who's willing to stand up and say anything mildly critical about uh, the Zionists and the, and the genocide in Gaza is going to be removed from the party. And it, it remains to be seen uh, exactly how far that goes. We're waiting to see if, for example, John McDonnell, the deputy leader, uh, who, sorry, who was the deputy leader, is is going to, to uh, be removed as well, because, of course, he's he said things which have been mildly critical of Israel, and uh, the, you know, so the question is whether all of the left, uh, the remaining left, will be removed from the party or not. The end result of this, David, is there's no discernible difference between uh, the Conservative Party, the Tories, uh, and Labour when it comes to what's happening right now uh, in the Middle East, and, and you, there can't be a bigger example of a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, or, in, it, as it's said by the International Courts of Justice, it's it's being uh, labeled as a genocide. Um, investigation has already commenced on this. So, I mean, the international consensus on this seems yep. to be pretty clear, but yet there's there's no movement within UK politics. I don't see any dissent, basically, to condemn oh. Israel. It's incredible. There, I mean, that, that the, the broad point is correct, but I mean, I would point to two things. One is the, the recent um, change of heart of the uh, British Foreign Office, which is said just the other day, that it wants a Palestinian state for the first time. Now, that's really very, very interesting. Uh, we don't know what the choreo choreography of it is and how it relates to the ongoing negotiations in Qatar over a potential ceasefire, etc. Clearly, there will be some relationship, but that, that's a very in, um, uh, important signal. But I would also say that, look, that your, your point about the, the uni party is absolutely correct, and of course it's correct in the, in the US too, in the Conservative Party, there still are people, the occasional person, who is willing to ask penetrating questions of the government. And there was a session the other day in Parliament where the Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron, the former Prime Minister, David Cameron, uh, who was elevated to the House of Lords in order to become Foreign Secretary, was put through his paces by a Tory MP, a new Tory MP, a woman called Alicia Kearns. Now, Alicia Kearns has a very interesting backstory. She was a Foreign Office official. She was either in the MI6 or very close to MI6. She ran the propaganda operations in Syria uh, for the British government, including uh, involvement with organizations which were involved in the uh, false chemical weapons attacks uh, in Syria. And so she's not, she's by no means a leftist. She is you know, she probably still remains an asset of uh, of MI6, but she put him through his paces and she said she wanted to pin him down and say, have you not seen any documents from uh, Foreign Office legal advisors which say that Israel has broken international humanitarian law by the the siege and by the attacks that it's done on the people of Gaza? And he squirmed really badly, and she really scored some points. And that was that was a very, very impressive performance from someone who, uh, on many other political issues, you wouldn't expect any such thing. So there, there is some dissent within 
the system, um, not in the party system, but within the actual uh, security apparatus. And you would expect there to be some dissent with MI6, uh, uh, the, the foreign intelligence agency, as opposed to MI5, the domestic intelligence agency, where, where dissent really ever happens, it's my understanding. So yes, there is a, pro a problem, but we are seeing some movements here. And of course, we've seen uh, suggestions in the press that there will be an announcement on Saturday about a ceasefire, which which looks like it won't be correct, but there clearly are the negotiations in the background, which is which this is where there's just feeding a kind of propaganda campaign, a shadow propaganda campaign about what's happening. Uh, uh, the Palestinian resistance have said that they are not going to uh, engage in a process which will undermine the Palestine Liberation Organization. And that's a really very very interesting way of phrasing it, because of course who would have, who would think that that Hamas would be a fan of the Palestine Liberation Organization. Remember, this is the umbrella body which uh, effectively runs the Palestinian Authority and which in which Fatah is dominant and which uh, Hamas has been excluded from, as have the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, mm -hmm. uh, two of the key armed organizations, their military base in, in Gaza. So we, we, I mean, what we know, of course, is that there's, the whisper is that there's an attempt to bring in uh, the Saudis, uh, um, amazingly enough, and uh, possibly the, the Qatari government to administer the West Bank and Gaza or, or Gaza. Now, of course, what Hamas are saying there is we're not we're not going to go for that, and that there's no chance of having a negotiation which could be successful on the basis of that. So we're seeing uh, uh, some kind of shadow boxing going on in this negotiation, and I I would bet that the British government statement about the recognition. Of, of Palestinian state is part of that. Of course, we also saw, didn't we, amazingly, only two weeks after the British Labour Party said that they were not going to recognise the Palestinian state, as soon as the Tories uh, said that they were going to recognise the Palestinian state, the Labour Party changed its mind again, and it's back on and said, oh yes, well, of course we always believed in a, a Palestinian state, you know, just a, a true, you know, an obvious lie, but the kind of lie you get from uni parties when they're caught out in in uh, in the in the algorithm of politics yeah that, that is interesting david that's going to come up as well in the G uh, un general assembly when this issue eventually lands uh there as well in this current legal process with the icj and i'm going to say that comment you made uh, very interesting about that uh conservative party member uh showing some dissent uh there we've also seen people who supported Bellingcat, uh, a regime change operatives uh, in media and online have, have gone behind the Palestinians on this issue. So that that's an interesting schism that you've identified that's very real, David, and very identifiable right across the board. Um, so that's, the, I, I think, and that could be within civil service as well, in the intelligence services. There are people who do have um, that political belief. They do uh, on, on that issue. They support the Palestinians, but not on all the other issues that we might be uh, covering and arguing, uh, people like yourself uh, and others, and more anti-imperialist, uh, you could say, uh, to use that term. But very, very good point. That's that's worthy of another discussion, by the way, David, like a deep, a deep discussion on that. Maybe we'll have to assemble a panel on that one, because I think that tells a lot about the story of, you know, geopolitics policy and media over the last uh, you know 10 plus years but uh, very interesting david miller uh thank you very much and before we go just give everybody a shout out about your show uh what you're doing on social media where people can find your work go ahead okay so i um i produce and uh, um co-present a show called palestine declassified on press tv 
which is uh, on uh, X, uh, formerly Twitter, at P Declassified. You can follow us there. I'm on Twitter on uh, as, at um, tracking underscore power. And maybe I say one word about uh, um, my oh, legal briefly, case. Briefly, I, I, I think we're running out of time. Um, my but... legal case, you can, you can support my case at uh, fightingfund.org. Follow David Miller. You'll see the links to his legal case there. Get behind that. It's a good effort, folks. Thank you, David Miller, for joining us. Appreciate it. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. Stay with us. We've got Zachary Foster, another academic, on the other side. We're going to deep dive into the ICJ genocide case and much more. Stick around. We'll be back in a few. <laughs> 